Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're doing well, staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we're going to meet best-selling Métis author Cherie Dimeline. Her breakout book, The Marrow Thieves, has widely been acclaimed for its portrayal of indigenous colonization and ecological devastation, and it was named one of Time Magazine's top 100 young adult novels of all time. Her other novels, like Empire of the Wild and Hunting by Stars, have won many awards, including the Governor General's Award for English Language Children's Literature. Her new book, Venko, is a novel about a coven of modern-day witches. It's an epic adventure that unfolds with secret witches, witch hunters, a magic spoon, and an epic road trip from Toronto to Salem through Appalachia and into New Orleans. Cherie joins us just a little bit later on. First up, let's meet Gord Sinclair. Best known as the bass player and one of the songwriters in The Tragically Hip, he's now a, quote, reluctant solo artist with a new album on the way. His new single, Ghoul Guy, marks a continuation of the solo career he never anticipated embarking on before the 2017 passing of The Tragically Hip frontman Gord Downey. Following decades of making music with the band's frontman, Gord Sinclair continues to honor his friend through music. The new song is a follow-up to the debut solo project, 2020's Taxi Dancers, which was released to critical acclaim, and this one brings back a more rhythmic and driving rock and roll energy that just might put you in the mind of the Tragically Hip. Have a listen to this song. Ghoul Guy, the lead single from my guest Gord Sinclair's forthcoming solo album, due out this spring. I've been reading some interviews that you did at the time that Taxi Dancers came out, so a few years ago now, and you called yourself a reluctant solo artist back yes. then. Do you still feel that way? Uh, I, I, I do, honestly. I mean, given my, you know, given my druthers, I would obviously much rather have Gord still here even if we weren't playing. Um, but I, I really, I really enjoyed my role in the hip, you know, Gord was a phenomenal front man. Um, having stepped into those shoes just a little bit already doing this, you realize what it, what it actually takes, you know? And, and um, so in retrospect, I, I actually don't mind the, uh, the view of Gord's rear end playing the bass beside the drum kit, you know um but that said i mean i know i i, I i've said it in the past and and but it's quite true that i know he wouldn't want us any of us to stop making music so here i am you know uh, still plugging away and, and and still doing it if, if for no other reason than just to sort of honor what we we did together for so long well, we're here to talk about the single, and we will, but I, I also read that he, when he knew that the end was near, encouraged you to find someone else to sing, and, and, and is that a true story that he said, but you you have to keep going, even without me? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he mentioned that to me uh, during my last visit with him, um, and I know Paul uh, Langlois from, from the group spent an awful lot of time with him, and it, it came up on, a, on occasion. Mm. Um, he just didn't see the hip 
stomping and, and was encouraging us, giving us his blessing. And, and um, it's not something that we've ever really seriously considered, to be perfectly honest. It's hard to conceive of the tragically hip with, without Gord, without any of us, honestly. We, we were at it for so long um, that, uh, you know, it, it's still there. You hear the songs on the, on the radio and, um, and I got the chance to play a few of them uh, just when I was gigging with the Trues uh, back in December at the Danforth. And you, you can see the resonance and there's, there's a magic in that. But uh, without the, the thing being intact, I mean, no disrespect, the groups have replaced members and stuff, but it, it, it's certainly not for us. Now, when you were in the hip, you used to write in the 80s anyway, so or the early 90s, I guess, the songwriting turned into kind of a collective. You called it woodshedding the songs yeah. uh, rather than you saying, okay, here's my song. What do you think? And, you know, going from there. Um, it, have you continued that style of songwriting with new players or how does it work for you now when you're coming up with new material? No, ironically, I'm, I'm right back to full circle from when I started <laughs> as a songwriter. Um I, I used to love that about being in the hip because you were never under any pressure. In fact, there, it was, there was a, a benefit to not finishing a song idea because mm. you could just bring a riff or a melody or even a piece of a lyric to the guys. And there was always someone, oh, that's cool. I've got something that goes with this. And that's how we wrote as a group. Um, Gord took over the, song, the, the lyrical duties of the band in, in the early 90s, you know, being the front guy, he wanted to express his words, which for me as a songwriter um, was great because the, the, writing the lyric and, and putting the words to melody in a, in a cohesive fashion was always the, the, the most time consuming part of the gig. Um, but now, you know, that's, I guess that's the, the benefit of a global pandemic. You know, you get locked down and you got lots of time to yeah. try to find the, the rhyme for orange, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Door hinge, I think, is yeah, the only that, rhyme exactly. that anyone ever we comes up. We change orange to tangerine in my case, and then it kind of opens <laughs> up lots of possibilities. So. And this new single, uh, Ghoul Guy, has like a, just a crazy rock and roll riff that uh, sort of powers the thing. Uh, and it's funny, before we turned on the record button here to do this interview, we were talking about a, a Godzilla poster that you have behind you. And you're like, I like, you know, I like things that are big and old, my music, my movies, all that kind of thing. And this kind of has that, that resonated with me when you said it, this song has this like big time rock and roll feel to it. And it's a lot of fun. Oh, well, that's cool. I mean, I, I, that's really sitting around the house while I'm writing. It's always been my case. I'm always first and foremost looking for a riff. That's yeah. how I. That's what I did with the hip, the hip as well. You know, once you once you get on something that sticks with you uh, and 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 just has that propulsive element. I mean, I'm I'm an old punk rocker. You know, um, that's that's my my bent has always gone that way. You're listening to Gord Sinclair on the Richard Krause Show. His new single Ghoul Guy is available now wherever you buy fine music. This was actually the the Ghoul Guy was the last last song that I came up with the record. I, I did about a month before we started recording, and it, it's one of those times where you're sitting around kind of unconsciously noodling on the guitar and you, I landed on it yeah. and and it just evolved really really quickly from there because the the riff stuck with me and stuck with me and it 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 it, it, re it reminded me of a hip song you know it reminded me it took me back to the late 80s early 90s when I was writing for the group when you're playing guitar because you, you play guitar in this in the hip you played the bass and guitar too, I suppose, but sometimes, but the, the bass primarily is what I know you as. And uh, they're, they're two different things. They, 
they look similar, but they're, they're two different things. They serve two completely different functions in a band. So, 100%. Yeah. So has the playing the bass influenced the way you play guitar? Is there a more rhythmic feel to your guitar playing, do you think, because you were part of this amazing rhythm section for so long as a bass player? Yeah, I, I think I've always been really conscious of of the right hand, for sure. I mean, that's how I, that's that's what I've always admired most about, you know, rock and roll, there's only a certain number of chords and progressions and stuff like that. But the nuance of the of, of the rhythm and the drive and the beat of a song, to me, that's always what's caught my attention first. And then it's the riff, and then it's the melody, and then it's the lyrics. And that's my way my brain always worked. Interestingly enough, I mean, I... As a bass player, I have the great fortune. I played with the same drummer and a fantastic drummer for, for 30 years. So I I don't really think too much about rhythm anymore because oh. it's just sort of ingrained in, in my hand and in my brain, you know. But interestingly enough, you, you, you get to the situation I'm in now where I'm singing and playing. It's really, really tough to play bass and sing at the same time. I've heard it's, that. It's, it's much like the, you know, what's required to be a drummer where, you know, pretty much anybody can do two things at once, but you throw in the third and throw in the fourth. And then, so my hat's off to, to the guys that actually do it, you know, Mako and uh, Sting, yeah. and, and because it's, it's a really tough thing. But um, basically with me playing the, playing guitar, the, 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 what I'm singing is taking the melody and the bass you're playing in between the melody and with the drums. So that's what's, what makes it a little more challenging. Yeah. I read an interview where you said something about uh, finding the holes in the melody and that's where you play the bass. That's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what I do. You, you, you look for your space and, and uh, most importantly, you know, when to leave the space, you let them let the melody take over. That's the key to songwriting for me. Well, I think also the key to playing uh, is knowing when not to play. Yes. I can admire, um, Yuengi Malstein or somebody like that, just for the flurry of notes sure. and things that they can play. But I admire people that know when to take a step back a little bit and not play. Yeah, 100%. The, the, the beauty and the purity of the whole note and the half note. Um, um, we were really fortunate. We made our first two records in the hip with, with Don Smith, um, mm. who'd worked you know, with Petty and, and Keith and, and just, he, we, we learned an awful lot uh, from him. And that's, he drilled that into me while we were making up to here, you know, like not to underestimate the, just holding a note and letting, letting things sort of feel in as they were, or, or just leaving the, a dramatic pause. And it, it really, it's, it's something um, in this day and age when lots of folks are making music on their own, on their computers at home, uh, you want you you have a tendency to fill up all that space, mm -hmm. and it's amazing how beautiful it is when you leave the space and let the song breathe. Well, I think it's when you're first starting out, you want to fill the space. You yeah. want to be big. You want to you know show what you can do. And I think it's a sign of confidence after a certain point where you can take a step back and say, you know, I'm not going to fill this up with unnecessary sound. 100%. Yeah. Songwriting and performance is not like radio. You don't have to be afraid of dead air. Let's talk about the ghoul guy. Is it true that it's about Mark Zuckerberg? You announced that on stage uh, a little while ago, and I was wondering uh, what the what exactly the inspiration was. Well, it, it, it very much is, honestly. And I, I, uh, I was watching the news releases um, after Frances Hogan, I think is her last name, H-A-U-G-E-N. She was the whistleblower. Uh, at uh, Facebook, uh, now Meta, I guess, and we're really uh, 
illuminated and confirmed what I had already felt that they were sort of exacerbating our more negative tendencies mm -hmm. in order to drive traffic and in order to sell more advertising revenue. And, and here's someone that was at the upper echelons of the company and, and really kind of made it official. And obviously I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit of an old fogey and, and uh, I was been slow slow to the social media and, and not really understanding it so much. And you kind of realize that uh, under the auspices of trying to create this global social network where we can all get along and stuff, it's actually going the exact opposite direction. Mm -hmm. It's trying to exacerbate tensions and, and partisanship and, and conflict and, and conflicting opinions in between people, which is kind of the opposite of, of building better and stronger communities, which we really, really need to get on, you know? And it, uh, from that, the, the lyric actually came really, really quickly for me, you know? Um, it's part of the problem. And obviously we all went through it during the, the lockdown and stuff where you, you know, you can see your neighbor through your window or across the balcony and you can wave hello, but do we ever really actually take the time to walk across over the driveway yeah. um, and have a conversation with someone face to face, you know, and I think that's ever more important. If we didn't learn anything from the pandemic it would be that we need to, to embrace our community, our local store owners, our neighbors, our friends, you know, that we were cut off from for such a long period of time. And um, so Google guy really is, you know, about this culture out there of, of these big tech founder guys that are building this cult of, of uh, worship. Mm -hmm. what they do and their wealth and stuff but it's it, it makes you question whether it's for their benefit or for ours and I, I think it's fairly clear that they're the ones that are benefiting from it the most I have a line in there about you know you don't know your neighbors but the fellow you're writing a song about has a rocket ship travels to space on its own which is really weird again I'm old enough to remember when the space race was between super national powers not wealthy uh, tech guys so it is interesting to uh, hear you talk about that when I think of the philanthropic work that you and the the hip as a as a collective did. It, you always had a cause. You always had um, a, a way of giving back to communities. You're doing right now a film company to make movies in Kingston, that sort of thing. So there's lots of interesting um, philanthropic work there. Do you think that there's a direct line from that back to the punk rock days where your music was probably socially driven was about local and 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 really feeling and really absolutely being passionate about the things that you were singing about yes one 100 i mean e even before i started to play uh i was inspired as a young man by um the energy of groups like the clash and the and the lyrical sense of groups like the Clash. i'm a big believer in the power of visual arts, musical arts, um, to drive social change and to inspire social change. And, and part of that is the actual ability to get people in a room together. Um, and it has to be something more than, you know, yummy, 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 I've got love in my <laughs> tummy, especially when you're observant enough to see what's going on around you and suggest that we could maybe be doing a little bit better together. Um, the other big thing about it too is that it, for a young musician, seeing those groups when I was in my mid-teens, it was inspiring. It, it made me want to do that myself. Mm -hmm. And I, if I think, boy, if we don't encourage our young musicians to pick up that mantle and, and write songs that have beauty 
melodically, but heft lyrically, then we're going to be in big trouble down the way. There's always been a pop component. I'm a big fan of pop music and mm -hmm. stuff, but I'm also a big believer in the potential of music and all of us to, to really drive social change. I think it's a really important thing. You're listening to Gord St. Clair on The Richard Krause Show. His new single, Ghoul Guy, is available wherever you buy fine music. Yeah, it, and it feels that way when you listen to the lyrics of uh, Ghoul Guy, when you think about all the work that the hip did. And I think that is... Uh, along with this incredible music uh, that the hip uh, has left behind and continue to release the, the, the live records that are coming out are great. The one from the Roxy is amazing. Cool. Thanks. Yes. Yeah. That must've been just a wild night. That is one of the legendary clubs yeah. ever in rock and roll. And, and it, and it sounded, well, the, the music to me, the record sounds sweaty and immediate and just like a rock and roll record. Yeah, it was an incredible thing. And in the process of doing the anniversary release of Road Apples, John Fay, our drummer, was going through the, you know, the, the labyrinth of, yeah. of tapes uh, uh, for our record company. He, he described it like, like being in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And we end up not being able to find half the tapes from that session, but in midst everything else, were these two reels of, uh, of, of tape that Don Smith, the guy who produced our records, um, recorded from the Westwood One truck way back in the day. And when you put them on, and, and literally, I, I, I get goosebumps thinking about it because I'm, I'm transported right away. You're 100% right. You can feel how hot yeah. and sweaty and grimy and exactly what rock and roll was supposed to be yeah. like. And, and uh, you know, it turns out we were, we were a pretty good little band back then, too. It was, <laughs> it's a, it was, it was a great show. And, and, it just, yeah, it was, it was fun. It's, uh, it, and I'm glad it finally, uh, you know, found it, found a hearing after all these years. So what I was saying before I got sidetracked there was that I think that the the legacy of the hip may very well be not only this incredible musical catalog that you leave behind that that continues to grow with. I'm sure you'll find more tapes and interesting things to release over the next little while, mm -hmm. uh, but also the philanthropic work and and making sure that the causes that uh, that you supported were front and center. And yeah. I think that is, um, you know, th that that takes you back to punk rock it takes you back to folk singers it takes you i mean there's there's a, a long musical tradition of that and i think the the hip falls squarely into that mold yeah well it, it's kind of you to say I, I i couldn't agree more i mean uh, we didn't invent this i mean when we were really young we got the invite in early early 90s 91 92 to support rush uh yeah. at maple leaf gardens um, and it was literally like a pinch me moment in our career. It was kind of like, oh, God, how could this any get, get any bigger than this? And then, then it turned out really it was, it was a benefit that they would put on annually for their local United way. And it was, again, we just picked up the mantle from those guys. It's, it was 100% the right thing to do when you can gather enough people through your music to stand in one place. Uh, you know, you can you can do an awful lot of good, not only just from a music perspective, from a, but from a from a philanthropic perspective as well. And, and, and Gord, uh, you know, he led from the front on that matter. I mean, his very last project was, was, was Secret Path and, and the Downey Winjack continues to, to really advance the cause of truth and reconciliation. And I'm, I'm so proud of him for that. And I, I'm, I'm proud of the work that the band did over the years and what we continue to do. It's important. It's, it's a big part that the, that the arts play in our, in our society. Uh, Gord, thank you so much. What a pleasure to speak to you.
Uh, Richard, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for the support. We really appreciate it. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm happy to do it. That was Gord St. Clair on the Richard Krauss Show. He was, of course, formerly the bass player of the Tragically Hip. He's now a solo artist. His new single is called Ghoul Guy. It's available now wherever you legally download or buy music. And if you're a Tragically Hip fan, I think you'll probably really like this song. Check it out. Called Ghoul Guy. Best-selling Métis author Cherie Dimeline's breakout book, The Marrow Thieves, has been widely acclaimed for its portrayal of indigenous colonization and ecological devastation, and it was also named one of Time Magazine's top 100 youth adult novels of all time. Her other novels have won many awards, including the Governor General's Award for English Language Children's Literature. Her new book, Venco, is a novel about a coven of modern-day witches. It's an epic adventure that unfolds with secret witches and witch hunters, magic spoons, and an epic road trip from Toronto to Salem through Appalachia and into New Orleans. I spoke with Cherie the morning after her wildly successful book launch for Venco. Here's Cherie Demoline. I hear the book launch last night was a big success. It was great. It was um, uh, it was myself and Claudia Day, uh, who of course wrote Heartbreaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have uh, I love Claudia. I I love her. Um, I really wanted. She was my request because um, you know we really respect each other's work. We've done festivals before, but we're very different. So I was like, that's what I want. I want someone who understands the work but is totally different. Like challenge me. Don't send me the questions. Just come in hot and see what wow. happens. So. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I love that. And I heard you signed for an hour afterwards. I did. That's probably a first since the pandemic, like a first in the last three years, I would imagine. It really was, Richard. It was um, um, when I was leaving the hotel to go to the event, um, I felt this feeling and I'm like, what is this? What is this feeling? Oh, this is anxiety. (laughs) And I I hadn't had it in terms of, you know, work for so long because all I've been doing is you know, in my pajamas writing. Um, and, and then I was like, right, this is what it, I was used to it. At yeah. one point, you know, I had seen, well, with the Marothies, I mean, I was seeing over a hundred thousand uh, young people a year. And so it was just very automatic and, you know, mm-hmm. you kind of know what you're going to say and how things are going to go. And then with the pandemic, um, it, all of that stopped. And so last night I was like, oh, this is stage fright. Oh, I hate it. I, you know, I forgot about this terrible thing. Um, but yeah, once we got there and uh, I mean, the crowd was so amazing and I think they were feeling it too. You know, like we, we are yeah. back together. We can actually have these discussions. So it was, it was a lot of fun. I think I had too much fun, to be honest. At one point I was like, what if I just flip this table over and we started, you know, let's just take down the patriarchy and the library people were like, why did we do this? <laughs> Listen, I don't blame you at all. Like once after three years, we all have some pent up whatever it might be to get out there i think so richard you and i probably shouldn't get together then so we'll be like take it all down <laughs> so let's talk about the book a little bit so i was reading uh that you like to think sometimes when you're coming up with ideas about mundane things just things that other people look at every day perhaps use every day but you don't really necessarily think them think of them as something that would inspire a book or inspire something like this uh and you in this case it was those little souvenir spoons and i think we've all seen them 
I think my grandmother used to collect them. But other than that, I'm not sure that I've ever given them a second thought. And somehow, though, this turned into the to the thing that sort of kicked off the idea for this book. So tell me a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So so at first I I, I decided uh, and and this doesn't always happen. Uh, usually it's a character um, that sort of kicks off a story or or a very strong feeling something's happening in the world. And, you know, I like everyone else, um, you know, have opinions and then it comes out in story. Um, the, the main character, actually, to be fair, uh, Lucky, is a character that I had been kicking around for years and I never knew quite what to do with her. So she was she was there already. Um, but at one point I thought I want to write a story um, about what happens when we support one another, because there's, you know, mm -hmm. so much. Uh, drama and attention paid to sort of the tearing tearing down um and so I thought I want to I want to talk about that the holy joy of what happens when we stand together and then I thought I want to write a, a witch book I've always uh wanted to do kind of a, a grown-up Narnia I love the idea <laughs> of anyone having access to you know this magical realm you're listening to Cherie Dimmeline on the Richard Krauss show her new novel Venko is available now wherever you buy fine books um so then I thought okay I'm gonna do I'm gonna do a witch book I'm gonna do it I I, I love um you know what you can do with a witch story because of course witch stories have held space for queer narratives when when we couldn't tell our stories um, for a lot of uh, people who, you know, don't follow follow regular, you know, I, or not regular gendered roles um, for people who sort of are seen as outsiders, quote unquote, um, that's the witch stories have held that space. So I thought, OK, I want to that's where I want to go. And then I thought what I really want to do is um, talk about how the extraordinary is is always inside of the ordinary. Um, and I don't know if that's an offshoot of, of, you know, not growing up with, with, you know, extravagances or, mm -hmm. or, you know, coming from my community um, where, uh, you know, everything was utilized um, and, and paid attention to, but I really love that idea that, you know, you don't need a special uh, license or ability to be able to access magic or, or the extraordinary that is right there. So I, so I started thinking about mundane things and I thought, uh, I came uh, to the, uh, you know, thinking about souvenir culture, right? The ultimate throwaway, cheesy tchotchkes, right. souvenirs. And my grandmother too, Richard, had those spoons. Yep. And I don't even, listen, I don't even know how she got half of them because she didn't travel much. Like she, you know, she certainly wasn't like hanging out in Aruba or like, you know, <laughs> even moose jaw. Like, and but she, she had all these spoons and it was on one of those really cheesy wooden plaques. Yep in the kitchen and 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 I would see them all the time and they were you know hideous but I thought let's go with that that's something because witches are often you know there's we see in a lot of witch stories there's some like there's magical objects mm -hmm. there's like a coveted thing or things of great value and I was like well I want to talk about how it's it's accessible to everyone that we all can have that so let's do it let's make these cheesy souvenir throwaway spoons the thing that's going to be the thing that holds the the magic um, and so then I thought, okay, well, I need to know more about souvenir spoons. I know nothing about them other than that they're hideous. Um, and so I, I went on, I just went online and I put in uh, souvenir spoons, North America. And the very first article that popped up told me that the first spoon meant for as a collectible in North America was created in Salem, Massachusetts in 1892 wow. 
to commemorate the 200 year anniversary of the witch burnings in Salem. And so I thought, okay, universe, that's a really subtle hint. Uh, let's go with that. And so, you know, as I was digging more, it was, you know, it was the Salem Witch Spoon um, and it was created by a company um, whose jewelry store was in, in a church in Salem that used to be one of the meeting houses where they held the Inquisition um, for, for their, their, you know, the Puritan version of the Inquisition. Um, and, and that the son of the owner went to Germany, to the area of Germany, that's room, the Brocken, which is rumored to be sort of the, the location of the first, uh, you know, coven and Sabbath. And he came back and they immediately put the, the spoon into production. And so of course, then I'm like, why did he do that? What did he see in Germany? What's happening? I need to write this book. I think uh, just to talk about the souvenir spoons for a second, I think that our grandmothers probably uh, went somewhere. Let's just say they they came and visited Toronto. So they buy a, a souvenir spoon. Once you have one, people give them to you. Yes. So, yeah. It's it's the it's the, the the cheesiest little gift that you could get for somebody. So your grandmother, probably my grandmother, didn't travel that much. She probably yeah. was in none of the places. But <laughs> absolutely, those are all gifts. I love that. That's the danger, right? It's like yeah. when you get something that has a, uh, I don't know, like a frog on it, and then mm -hmm. someone sees it in your house, and they're like, oh, they yeah. love frogs. And then yeah. every year for Christmas, you get some sort of frog thing. Venko is about uh, witches, and th there's a rich literary tradition of, rich, uh, of witches, and I think of you know, Hansel and Gretel and uh, Macbeth and I don't know what else, the Wizard of Oz, there's all that sort of thing. But you didn't really grow up, from what I understand, with those as reference points for witches. It wasn't really part of the storytelling tradition that you grew up with. So what would have been the equivalent or was there one? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I sure I, I, you know, had I, I fully accessed popular culture and, you know, read fairy tales. And mm -hmm. um, um, but to be honest, things like, you know, Grimm's fairy tales and stuff. It was quite boring to me um, because I had the great good fortune of growing up uh, with my grandmother and her sisters who told stories. Yep. Um, and they told stories that were uh, from our community or that were based in our community um, or from surrounding communities where we had family. And so that felt very intimate to me. So when they said, you know, um, they told me a story about the Ruguru, right? They, they, it wasn't once upon a time there was a creature. A it was, and, yeah, right? Yeah. They would say, oh, uh, if you go out tonight, uh, someone's seen that Ruguru up by Patu's uh, <laughs> garage over there. So just be careful. And I was like, as I'm leaving the, the house, like, are you kidding? And then, you know, they tell me the uh, story. Yeah. So it was very intimate and it was, it was you know, very emotional because it was immediate. And they also they always involved people, you know, from oh your grandfather one time he it was it was very uh, connected to me. Yeah. So when I read these sort of wider narratives, um, they seemed far away and you know entertaining, but uh, I wasn't terrified, um, which is always fun, especially yeah. when you're young and 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 safe. It's 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 uh, it's good to be rattled every now and then. I think. Um, but I, I so I guess those stories might be the equivalent. I mean, certainly they called. Uh, some people witches. I'm sure people called them witches because mm -hmm. you know my grandmother used to make all the uh, remedies for for our ailments and right. had a lot of these uh, older teachings. And you know they would go out on walks to pick 
the different medicines they needed. Um, but I, I guess I didn't really, I think, I think I, like a lot of people grew up with this, this idea of, um, which is having something to do with the devil, mm-hmm. uh, which of course is ridiculous, but you know, and, it, but it stuck with me because the things that they were saying they were doing, like, you know, making these potions or like tending to the community. I'm like, well, I know that, but we don't, I mean, the, the word doesn't sound familiar to me, but what you're saying they're doing is kind of badass and and I, I and I understand what that is so it was you know a very a, an interesting juxtaposition of sort of western terminology and the actual lived life of women who held stories knowledge and medicine you're listening to Cherie Dimmeline on the Richard Krauss show her new novel Venco is available now wherever you buy fine books do you think that the urgency of the stories that your grandmothers would tell you and the immediacy of them, uh, is there a straight line between those stories and Venko, the book today, you know, and your work today? Yeah, well, certainly I, I um, would would definitely, I, do, I can't say that I wouldn't be a writer without them because, I mean, who knows? Maybe mm. I'd be an astronaut. Maybe I would... <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, yeah. make comics. That'd be cool yeah. too. But um, but certainly the because they gave me uh, all of the information that I needed for you know growing up in the best way possible that they knew, they gave to me in stories. It became important for them to you know they would repeat certain stories. It was kind of like you know going over a line to make sure that it was you know solid. And then I would have to tell them back, and I would have to tell it back. Uh, in in a different way, and actually, um, uh, one of my uh, mentors, the great Lee Miracle, this was something that we we talked about because we had this training in common. Um, I, you know, I loosely say training, but yeah. um, I think well, it's it to make sure that the stories don't fade yes. away, right? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And she, so she and I had the same. It was given to us in the same way, and we're from very different communities, um, but where you know, elder storytellers would sort of tell you these stories, and it was sometimes informal, sometimes you know, very serious and formal, and they would repeat it, and then you had to tell it back different but the same. Right. So that they understood that you understood what the core of that message was, but that right. you could weave a basket, your own basket of words to carry it forward. So therefore, you know, that the, the, the means of transportation for whatever that lesson is, or, or, you know, history or teaching, that it never gets outdated, that it's, mm-hmm. it suddenly can't move forward because it's getting changed every time a new storyteller takes it while remaining the same. So I think um, I think there, there's always a direct line between, you know, those um, hilarious, uh, you know, sometimes inappropriate, really brilliant old women who raised me um, and any story that I tell. But certainly Venko is, um, I think, more of an homage to that, the ways in which they held all of that knowledge um, in, in a world that you know, didn't, didn't recognize it. I mean, this is unpaid work, right? We're talking about, this is the, the labor around the kitchen table. Um, and in the, in the backyard, this is, this is the stuff they did to keep us all, uh, well and safe. I have to ask you, uh, this seems to me like it's perfect, you know, fodder for a film or a television show. Is there any eye towards any of that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, AMC has has optioned Venko for a, a series, um, and I'm actually currently writing the pilot. That's tremendously exciting. 
I'm super excited. I'd like to be cooler about it, Richard, and be like, yeah, no big deal. There's a TV series, but I'm, I'm, I'm freaking out a little bit. There is no uh, virtue in being cool about stuff like that. You know, (laughs) it's exciting. I mean, you work, you never know when you write something, if people will buy it or not, or if they'll care about it or not. And, you know, getting the book out is one thing, but then when it goes on to have another life, I had one of my books translated into French recently in France, and it was the super coolest thing. And I had nothing to do with it, just a box of Moride one day. And I was like, look what I did. Absolutely nothing. But it had a life on on its own. And that's cool. Yes. Thank you. I, You know what? And that's that's this is a huge part of everything about talking about the extraordinary inside of the ordinary, allowing ourselves to feel yeah. joy. Right. We have to have so much restraint. We have like all these responsibilities and now we have social media and there's everyone looking and we have to sort of present in a certain way. But like, really, I think we're all just like goofy, excited kids trying to find that piece of joy. And it's as an artist, it's so incredible. And it really does feel like I just I was speaking to someone on an interview earlier and, you know, she was saying, have you done any spells? And I, I was like, not that I know of, except for the fact that a spell is just words in a particular order with intent. And the intent is to take what I'm thinking or the image in my head and to give it to someone else. And, and really, I mean, that's what writing is. And so when that's successful, that moment of connection, when your work goes on and has a life of its own, that's magic. It is magic. And so is she. That was Cherie Dimmeline. Find her book, Venco, wherever you buy fine books. That's magic. A big thanks to Cherie for coming by. Also, a big thanks to Gord St. Clair. Check out his new single, Ghoul Guy, wherever you legally download and buy music. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. (laughs) 